Before we turn our attention to a sermon and learning from Scripture, let's pray together. Almighty God, we long to see you. Holy Spirit, come teach our souls to love your truth. Amen. Well, the bad news is that nothing in this world is as it ought to be, at least not fully. There are good things about life in this world, but nothing is fully as it should be. Everything has been touched by brokenness. So everything in some way needs to be restored. That's the bad news. The good news is that God is a God of restoration. And so um, here's the mission statement that we use here at Intown Community Church. Our mission is loving our community to life by pursuing gospel restoration. That word restoration implies that everything is broken and needs to be made right again. And that word gospel means good news. There is good news about Jesus, good news about what God has done through his son to put things right again. And we sense that because of what God has done in the world, we have a mission. He has called us to be agents of gospel restoration, agents of putting things right again, agents of bringing life where there is death, agents of love where there is hatred or apathy. And it's a good thing. But we can't pursue gospel restoration in our world unless we first pursue it in our own hearts and lives. To say it another way, we can't be fit for this mission unless something powerfully changes us. Because you know we said earlier, brokenness has touched everything. That means it has touched us. Great mission. Wonderful to be part of it. But we can't be of any use for God's mission in the world unless first we are changed in powerful ways. And we won't experience that change unless we draw near to God. Drawing near to God so that we can be changed so the world can be restored, that process has a name. Drawing near to God so that we can be changed, so that the world can be restored, is what the Bible calls prayer. We're about to read from Acts, the book of Acts, early days of the Christian church, chapter 4, not long after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, just a few weeks after those events, in fact. And we're going to read... That, that early Christians were coming together to pray. Why are they praying? Well, two of their leaders, Peter and John, have been arrested. And they've been threatened. And they've been warned. Don't ever talk about Jesus again. Don't ever do anything in his name again. Or else. They've been released. They've come back to the larger group of followers of Jesus. They've reported all of this. And then what happens? The response is, we need to draw near to God 
so that we can be changed, so that the world can keep hearing this good news about what God has done to restore all things through His Son, Jesus. That's what we're about to hear about, Acts chapter 4. Stacy, thank you. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal And perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you want to get healthy? Lots of ways to do it. One way to do it, start cycling. Find yourself a bicycle. Maybe it's a real one. Maybe it's a bike in a gym. Uh, But you start cycling, right? And um, you find that there are a couple of things you can do while you're on a bike. One is called pedaling, and it's hard work. And then there's this other thing called coasting. So um, there's a trail in Missouri that I used to ride on a lot. It's about 275 miles long. It's an old railroad bed, so it's, and it's in a river valley. So most of it is entirely flat. And you can't coast there, right? You have to always be pedaling, and it's hard work. But then you leave the valley, and you get up into the rolling foothills, and you go up a hill, and that's hard work. But then what comes next is the downhill, And you can stop pedaling for a while. And you don't have to work. And you can coast. But either way, it's healthy, right? Like you're on the bike. Whether you're pedaling or coasting, you're on the bike. So you're healthy either way, right? My greatest fear as a pastor is that I would coast. That I would be content with coasting. And that... This whole church would learn from me that it's okay to coast. That it's okay to just kind of do the bare minimum spiritually. That, that it's okay to just somehow be, can I be the, the least committed Christian possible and still get credit for it? Can I sit on the bike and not do any work and still get credit for being an athlete? Like that's my greatest fear as a pastor is that I would coast and that we would coast. And you see in, in Acts chapter 4, 
the leaders of the church have been asked to coast, haven't they? They've been asked to go back to their people and say, let's go on believing that Jesus is the most important thing about the whole universe, but never tell anyone about it. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want that to happen to us. And so today we're starting a new sermon series that's going to help us avoid that, where we say, you know, we, we don't want to coast We're going to dig into our mission statement, which we saw earlier. And we're going to dig into these three key words that you see up here, changed, known, sent. We're going to spend some time unpacking those words because they will help us to understand the mission that God is calling us to as a local congregation and that he calls his people to throughout centuries and in all kinds of places. So let's unpack those words for a moment, and then we'll dig into Acts 4 a bit more. Um, why these words, what do they mean? Now here's the short version. When, when we say changed and known and sent and, and use those to talk about the paths that, that this mission of gospel restoration unfolds along, we're saying that hey, each of these is a path and where they intersect where they intersect is, is where God has called us to. And this first path changed. We, we as a Christian people are people who pursue encounters with God. That should change our lives. We want to have life-transforming encounters with God and His grace. And if you were to go on our website and read our mission, vision, values, you would hear that theme coming up over and over and over again. And then you're going to hear that we're people who want to be known. We're a people who, are, the, the very word church means assembly. It implies a group of people together, not people doing this alone and apart from one another. We are people who want to be known. We want to pursue relationships, authentic, caring relationships. And then finally, sent, we, we want to pursue service, sacrificial service, service that costs us something that's not convenient. It's not always comfortable. Sacrificial service to our neighbors, our culture, our world. That's what the church is called to. And, and that's what we are called to as in town. And if we're serious about loving our community to life by pursuing gospel restoration then pursuing these three things are the ways we work that out. And um, what I want to do now is to say, that's kind of vague, right? Especially this one known, authentic, caring relationships. Look, everybody wants to have authentic relationships these days. Anybody can say that, but it's hard to actually do it. What does that actually mean? Well, glad you asked. We're going to spend some time unpacking it. Three weeks at a clip. We're going to spend three weeks in January unpacking what it means to be sent. We're going to spend three weeks later this year unpacking what it means to be known. And starting today, three weeks unpacking what this idea of being changed by by having encounters with God that, that don't leave us the same as we once were.
Right? So let's, uh, here's our mission, right? Loving our community life by pursuing gospel restoration. If we want to do that, then we also have to pursue encounters with God and his grace. What does all of that mean? Well, I want to know more about what restoration is. That's why we printed a bit from our mission statement here on the front of our worship guide, this paragraph of what is restoration? God's restoring all of creation to its original order and beauty. And when he's done, the whole of his good world is going to be more beautiful and orderly than it was when he began. The end is going to be better than the beginning of the story. We want to be part of that. Well, how does that happen? It happens through the gospel. What is the gospel? Again, that's why we put it here. We want to be clear. We don't want to hide behind traditional Christian words whose meaning we don't really understand. What's the gospel? It's good news. That if you want to know God's heart, you see it in Jesus. The most glorious purposes of God's heart are revealed and fulfilled and accessible in the gift and sacrifice of his son, Jesus. This next sentence has that changed known scent rhythm to it. You'll hear it. The gospel transforms the hearts and minds of individuals. We want to be changed. It creates a new type of community among those who embrace it. We are a people who must be known. We must have that kind of community or we aren't doing gospel restoration. And it empowers us to serve our neighbors, our culture, and our world. We are a people who are called to be sent. The gospel restoration mission that God has for us weaves those three paths together. And at that intersection, we find who we are called to be. But there's this problem that that it remains a little bit abstract. Changed. Okay, we pursue life-transforming encounters with God and His grace. What does that actually mean? Give me something concrete. What will we do because of this commitment? And you know what? There are probably a lot of ways to have those kinds of life-transforming encounters with God and His grace. And no one church can do them all. So what are the few things that we're going to try to do well instead of trying to do a little bit of everything? That's what we're going to say over the next three weeks. And here's part one. Because we're committed to being changed, transformed by the power of this good news about Jesus... We're going to seek out ways to encounter God and be changed by Him. And one of the ways we're going to do that is what we already heard in Acts chapter 4, prayer. We're going to pursue a relationship with God through prayer. Oh, snap. Now, some of you don't know what that means. So if you need help, Raise your hand if you could help someone around you understand what OSNAP means, right? So, higher hands, please. Please, higher. Right? So, if you need a tutor for after the service, because you don't know what OSNAP means, but OSNAP, did he just say prayer? Because sometimes that makes us squirm a little bit. 
And here's why. Some of us hear the word prayer, and we, we're thinking about it from a very a, a perspective of secularism. But prayer is just people trying to make themselves feel better. There's nobody there to listen. It's not going to change anything. And so we're about to spend uh, 15, 20, hopefully no more than 15 minutes of my life talking about something meaningless. Well, that's one perspective on prayer. Another is the perspective of religion. Ah, prayer is a way I prove I'm a good religious person. Prayer is the way I show myself that I'm a good Christian. I'm not like those other Christians who are subpar. Which means that eventually prayer becomes just a source of guilt. It's the thing I'm supposed to do, but I don't do enough or I don't do it well enough or I don't do it long enough or I don't do it with enough faith but that's not that's not what we're called to let's take the perspective of this gospel good news about Jesus the gospel is the good news that the most glorious purposes of God's heart are revealed and fulfilled and accessible in the gift and sacrifice of his son Prayer is a way of having a relationship with God, the God who has made his heart known. Prayer is a way for us to pursue that kind of life-transforming encounter with God and his grace. It's not a test to see who's good at religion and who's not. It's not a waste of time, just an empty way of making ourselves feel better. There is a God who has made himself known and he has invited us through his son to come to him and speak to him. Let's unpack that a little bit from Acts chapter 4. Prayer as an encounter with God. This little snapshot from the life of the early church. You, you, you see what was happening there, when Peter and John get released from, from a night in jail and being threatened, and uh, they come back and they say to the other followers of Jesus, this is what has happened. And then listen to where they're, what, what they do, right? Verse 24, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. Now, knowing what we do know about the habits of, of prayer in ancient Judaism, which is where most of the people praying this prayer had learned to pray in Jewish synagogues. What this likely means is one person stood up and said these things and everybody else was saying, yeah, that's my prayer too. What she is saying is what I want God to hear right now. What he is saying is what I want God to hear me saying. What, what these leaders are saying is that's my prayer too. And then notice where they start. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And the reason we're saying that is we're good little children who went to Sunday school. And that's the lesson we remember from week one. That's not why they're saying it at all, is it? If you just spent a night in jail and really powerful people who murdered your Savior only a few weeks ago told you don't ever speak about him again 
the first thing you need is to get really close to the God who has all power and to say, Father, right now, who you are is what we most need to know. Our greatest need right now is matched with your heart. And these rulers who have threatened us, these leaders who oppose us, these people who who have the power to have us killed, they are not in charge of the world you are. So here's the beginning of this cycle and rhythm of prayer. We, We have a mission to accomplish, Lord. And we can't do that unless we draw near to you. And we know who you are. You are the sovereign Lord. You made everything. You have spoken to us. We've heard your words. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. God, we want to know you. One way we know you is through the scriptures. One way we know you, we draw near to you in prayer. And then it's not just an encounter with God that we see here. It's an encounter with God's grace. Now, if we had more time, and we don't, I'd pause for a couple minutes and let you read through the Scripture text again and see if you see the word grace, and you'd say, no, I don't. I don't see that anywhere. Let's take another look. It has to do with the the Scripture passage written by your servant, our father David, that begins in verse 25. This is a quotation from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord, God, the Father, and against His anointed one, Jesus Christ the Son. And the next couple of verses unpack that in terms of what just happened to Jesus. Herod and Pontius Pilate are rulers who have taken their stand against Jesus. They condemned him to be crucified. Well, what's interesting is that if you read the whole of Psalm 2, it has a lot to say about what happens to the kings and rulers of the earth who look up at God and say, you're just a slave master who wants to keep us in chains forever, and we're not going to have any of you, and we don't care who you have anointed as your ruler over all things. We're throwing off your chains. When you look at the most glorious being in the universe, and you reject his appointed king, Jesus, you get called to account for that. And so Psalm 2 is full of phrases like justice and anger and wrath. So what's interesting when you read this prayer is that you don't hear the church praying, God, please destroy those who arrested our leaders. God, please annihilate those who oppose this good news about Jesus. 
what you hear is a prayer for us to have more courage. Fill us with boldness. It's not a prayer of anger against those who oppose Jesus. It's a prayer, God, would you, would you make sure that they keep having an opportunity to hear good news about Jesus by making us willing to risk our lives to tell them. Now, if you had the ammunition sitting there in Psalm 2 to pray a prayer about justice and wrath and anger, and instead you said, this is the day to pray Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the son so he won't be angry and you can find refuge in him. What would make you pray that way? Remember who's leading the prayer? Peter and John? Remember who who is one of the apostles that got arrested? The very fact that Peter is allowed to be in the room while this prayer is being prayed says the grace of Jesus is powerful enough to make people who abandoned Jesus while he was on the way to the cross leaders. And remember who else is praying this prayer? This is Christian community gathered to pray together. Only a few weeks earlier, Peter had said to them, Acts chapter 2, read it. You are the ones who crucified Jesus. People who supported the crucifixion of Jesus are allowed to pray this prayer. People who were there saying, we think God's son should be put to death are able to be pardoned and changed and transformed, the grace of Jesus can do that? And this is why there is a sense as the church gathers to pray in Acts chapter 4, even those who are currently persecuting the people of Jesus and despising the name of Jesus, Jesus has enough grace for them too. And keep reading the story and you see that happen in a powerful way in Acts chapter 9 when Saul becomes a preacher of Jesus. Persecutor becomes preacher. We draw near to God and we find what we need in His presence And we find testimony of the grace of Jesus as we draw near to him. And this is what happens. Our lives are changed. Here we are, this weak little people, gathered in a room somewhere with every right to be afraid and tremble and try to find a way to just do the smart thing and keep our mouths shut and stop talking about Jesus and just coast And just say, we've got this little group of people who love Jesus, and and that's good enough. (laughs) Why would we want to, you know, upset the leaders? And the same thing's going to happen to us that happened to Jesus. We don't want that. That's not what any of us signed up for. Can we just coast? Because that's what we're really tempted to do right now. And then here are these people saying, no, God, change us. We don't want to be afraid. 
Fill us with boldness and courage. Listen to their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look back to the early part of the chapter. God healed someone and that was the opportunity for Peter and John to start talking about Jesus in public. Lord, do it again so we have another great opportunity. Give us boldness. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They were changed. They drew near to God through prayer. They were changed. And so the world could keep hearing this message of gospel restoration of what God has done through Jesus. So, where does that leave us on a day like today? I'll say, I wish I knew all the answers. Uh, We as leaders of the church, the elders of the church, have just started talking about how could we become the kind of church where where this kind of commitment to prayer is really worked out even more than it is right now. We don't have all the answers. The staff is going to start talking about this on Tuesday at our staff retreat. We're excited about it. We also don't know exactly where it's going to take us. Here's what we do know. God will change us when we draw near to him in prayer. Not when we draw near to him with a mindset of this is just a waste of time and kind of whatever. And not when we draw near to him saying, yes, this will give us a better way to prove how spiritual we are. But when we draw near to him and say, God, our whole world is broken and so are we. So there's something about us that needs your power to change us and would you do it? Very quickly, I want to tell you what that looked like for me this past week. I was able to go on a prayer retreat that lasted 48 hours, involved fasting, no food, no water. And I was with three of my spiritual heroes. I'm lying. None of that happened. Here's what really happened. Here's what really happened. What really happened is... I'm wrestling with this fear. It's a new fear. I've not had it before because my kids are all adults now. My new fear as a dad is that my adult children would not respect me. That they know me well enough to start going, hmm, he ain't all he's cracked himself up to be. I'm afraid of that. And so I'm constantly, you know, emails and texts and conversations with my kids. And and one of them needed me to kind of step into something with them. And I'm and I and I have about 30 seconds standing in the closet looking at this ratty old ironing board. With my eyes open and only half tears in them, like not enough tears for it to count as a powerful spiritual thing. Right, but, but enough to go. There's a lot at stake in these 30 seconds. God, Father, I'm laying that fear down at your feet 
Because it's an idol that's going to keep me from loving my children well. Because they do not need me to be their hero. I love them so much that I want you to be their hero. And so my big concern right now is not whether they respect me, but whether they are walking with you. Help me in this moment to lay that idol down so that I can be a loving father. And that takes about 30 seconds. And there are no spiritual mentors in the room with me. There are no heroes. It's not a mountaintop moment. I hadn't been fasting for months and weeks. But God can meet us in those moments and take these fears and make us bold instead. And make us the kind of people who can actually be good for somebody else. Instead of the kind of people who are trying so hard to prove that we deserve it. Drawing near to God can shape our hearts through the gospel rather than through religion. Secularism is just one more way of proving you deserve it. I'm smart enough to see that all of this is poppycock. And real prayer is saying, God, there is no enough about me. I'm not smart enough. I'm not respectable enough. I'm not strong enough. I need you. We need you. Change us so that we can be good to the world. Let's do that together. Let's learn that together. Let's confess our faith together. There's a uh, powerful part of a document called the Westminster Larger Catechism that basically says... This is how God changes us through His grace. We want to take a moment to do that before we come to the Lord's table. I'm going to ask a question and invite you to answer it. I would ask you to reflect, though, if this is about the Spirit of God doing things to change people. If you don't believe that the Spirit of God exists, don't answer this question when I ask it. If you don't believe that the Spirit of God changes people because people are pretty good and they don't need to be changed, this Q&A is not for you. But if you believe these things, let's confess what we believe together. What makes the Word of God effective for salvation? The Spirit of God causes the reading and especially the preaching of the Word to enlighten, convince, and humble sinners. The Spirit drives sinners out of themselves and draws them to Christ. He conforms them to His image and subdues them to His will. He strengthens them against temptations and corrupting influences, and He builds them up in God's grace and establishes their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation.